All right. This week we have on Dr. Leela Derrickson. She's a naturopathic doctor, fellow colleague, and uh, she has a master's in integrative mental health, practicing here in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to the Herbal Hour podcast. Uh, very excited to have you on today. Thank you, Bogdan, and thank you for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to uh, talk about the mental health uh, of the people during this time, especially with quarantine and all the turmoil in the world leading to a lot of deterioration in mental health mm -hmm. specifically and feelings of isolation. So I always love having people on to talk about mental health because it is a, a big passion of mine in terms of my practice, um, but also a really important topic for the general populace, I guess, uh, so to say. So how did you get started in this? What, what originally inspired you to focus in on mental health as a naturopath? Yeah, so um, I mental health has always been um, something that's interesting to me. Like even when I was younger, I was interested in psychology and um, sort of like the the human experience. Um, but I've I've had a lot of people throughout my life that um, that struggled with mental health and um, have had my own experiences with it. Um, more recently, I've been. Uh, drawn to ADHD. And that is partly, you know, kind of the, the same thing. A lot of, a lot of folks that I know are, um, have ADHD. And, um, and I also, as an adult, was diagnosed with ADHD myself. And um, when, once I realized that, like, realized how much that explained and, and just what a relief for me it was to get that diagnosis. And for so many of the people that I know and that I've talked to, um, to really have this framework um, of like, oh, okay, that's why, like, it's not just not being able to do this thing. It's like, you know, our brains just work differently. Um, and, and then in that realization, also that kind of connects you to this, this neuro tribe of other people who experience the world in the same way. Mm. As far as ADHD goes, it's pretty common is there any kinds of conditions or behaviors that are not understood to be as a symptom of ADHD, meaning that people can think it's just their personality or uh, the way they are, but it's actually a symptom of ADHD? Yeah, um, a lot, I think. Um, and something something that I've noticed, I think this happens with, with a lot of folks, but particularly with uh, women, and girls, it tends to be underdiagnosed mm. um, with the, there's sort of this uh, stereotype of ADHD being like the hyper, hyper boys in school who can't sit still and are disruptive. Um, but there's also people who have um, the inattentive form, whether, uh, whether they're boys or girls or adults, um, that they tend to be less disruptive and are just kind of spacey and might might be experiencing things like um, just taking a really long time to finish their schoolwork or um, kind of like spacing out in the middle of conversations. And so there, it's since it's not as disruptive, it, it tends to be overlooked. Um, and as adults, uh, people with ADHD tend to be um, really intelligent and and they come up with lots of ways to sort of mask their symptoms or to cope with their symptoms or drawn to um, drawn to careers or you know things that help them sort of 
continue to function. But that, that doesn't mean that it's not still stressful to get through the day and that it doesn't take that extra effort to kind of like stay organized and do the simple things like, you know, doing, doing the dishes or whatever, um, whatever day-to-day stuff just kind of keeps falling to the background. What do you think uh, causes ADHD? Is it something that is inborn or is it related to environment? Is it something that could be, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, cured where the person could not have it? Or is it something that's almost like wired in that you at best just cope with it? That's a really good question. Um, And I think like many um, mental health things, there, there are a lot of different elements, you know, the biopsychosocial um, realm with there, there does appear to be a genetic element. Um, it tends to run in families. Um, and, and I do think of it as a sort of a neurological um, condition. Like I, in, in a way, I hesitate to call it a disorder because it's so common. It, it, it's sort of um, it could be thought of as um, just a genetic variant. Um, but there are also things that can make the symptoms of ADHD more challenging or, or more problematic. Um, so if, uh, if someone has an environment that's really not supportive or they're often criticized or shamed for their symptoms, that can... Um, Worsen, worsen just their, their well-being and lead to disorders like um, substance use disorders or anxiety and depression. Um, and there are also um, other things that can happen like uh, people with who've had concussions or TBIs, um, sort of post long-term post-concussion syndrome can look very much like ADHD or worsen pre-existing ADHD. Um, and additionally, a lot of times uh, trauma can look like ADHD and, and symptoms of PTSD, like inattention and difficulty with emotion regulation um, can worsen symptoms of, of pre-existing ADHD or can appear to be ADHD when it's, you know, like a long-term, um, long, like complex trauma from childhood, for example. So you mentioned some of the symptoms like inattention and difficulty with uh, emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. What are the other telltale signs of ADHD? Because I like I've heard and read a little bit about ADHD and I think I have many of the symptoms, although I never considered myself and never got diagnosed. But for the mm-hmm. people listening, what's a telltale sign that you have ADHD versus, you know, you're just disorganized or something as a as a human? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it, one of the things with ADHD is it's on a, it's kind of on a spectrum. So mm-hmm. um, it, according to the DSM, there's uh, like a group of symptoms that are predominantly inattentive, and then a group that are predominantly hyperactive. And um, the way that they're described in the DSM is um, mostly describing children. And uh, so it might be like, oh, the, they don't seem to listen or they can't seem to follow through with instructions or um, have a hard time organizing and, and things like that um, in terms of inattentive. And then hyperactive is, um, tends to be like hard time staying in their seat or fidgeting a lot or interrupting people all the time. Um, 
However, as um, in terms of like the things that aren't in uh, in the DSM, it's I, I think of it as like a broad broad difficulties with executive function. So um, people being time blind, like not being able to um, either like when you're recalling how long ago something was, just like having a really murky idea of that or or when making estimates of like how long something is gonna take, being way off all the time, like consistently. Um, definitely the easy distraction and difficulty focusing, although um, ADHD, people with ADHD also have an ability to hyper-focus um, because it's, mm. there's a, it's an interest-based nervous system. So for things that aren't interesting to them, that's when you see the symptoms like, oh, I can't, can't focus, not really sure. Like just, I've read this page like 20 times and have no idea. But if it's something they're interested in, like a, a topic that they want to research or, um, or uh, a game that they really like, they can just focus for hours and not be aware of like mm. anything, anything around them. So the, the idea that people with ADHD can't focus is not exactly true. Um, so, that's, yeah. that's fascinating because what you're saying seems to be uh, implying that it's, as you were saying, not really necessarily even a disorder, but almost a certain kinds of uh, nervous system and or certain kind of even temperament that mm -hmm. uh, struggles a lot with the way the world is set up. So mm -hmm. ADHD is most commonly diagnosed throughout the school years, right? And if anyone remembers school, it was very boring. A lot of classes were very boring. <laughs> so like, like the average person had difficulty paying attention. So it wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't in just, it wasn't necessarily anyone's fault. So I yeah. wonder how much of ADHD is a temperamental thing that just doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't fit into society. Like it doesn't fit to, you know, stringent times. Like you have to be there at this time. It doesn't fit into, you got to study this or learn this, even if it has no interest mm -hmm. rather than like, you know, having fun with your friends, learning what you want to learn. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's exactly what you're getting at that that difficulty with regulation. So like someone who doesn't have ADHD might still struggle to do something that's boring, but they can kind of eventually get themselves to sit down and like, like, say like, okay, I know I don't want to do this, but I have to, it's going to be boring for a while. Um, but someone who does have ADHD might have a much harder time and might spend like hours or days just like thinking like, I know I need mm -hmm. to do this. Why can't I get myself to do it? Like I'm sitting down, I'm looking at it, like, and I just can't get started. Um, or sometimes it, there's a difficulty with switching from one activity to another too. Like just that um, ability to regulate the impulse and the, the intention of going from, here's one thing that I'm, I'm finally got myself going on and now I can't stop doing it until it's done or until like something external interrupts um, mm. what I'm doing. And the, to come back around too, that you mentioned like, what, what are some of the contributing factors and what might be a cause? Um, there, there tends to be, there's an association with less dopamine in the prefrontal cortex. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's where we get all of our executive function and impulse control for, you know, both like planning and emotional regulation is that, that top down regulation. 
And that's one of the reasons why stimulants are so effective as a medication for ADHD is because they increase the availability of dopamine to be able to direct mm. that focus and direct your activities and regulate emotions. Because that's the case, uh, is it typical that people with ADHD use uh, different kinds of uh, substances like recreational substances as a way to cope, like caffeine, nicotine, all, all those kinds of things because of how the dopamine system works? There, there's definitely a correlation between um, there's a, a higher rate of substance use with, um, with people uh, and substance use disorders with people who have ADHD. And um, it's partly because of that, that dopamine reward system. And, and um, you know, I've, I've heard so many times people in undergrad being, you know, saying like, oh, I, I tried Adderall because my friend gave it to me or I needed to study. And everyone else was like, high and hyper. And I just felt calm and normal for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, there's that of like seeking like, oh, how can I, how can I find a way to function and, and feel better? And there's the difficulties with impulse regulation um, too. So if there's um, the, the impulse to use a substance as well as that um, somewhat normalizing effect, as well as a higher risk of having having more difficulties in society and being prone to anxiety and depression creates kind of a perfect storm for for being predisposed towards having um, increased substance mm -hmm. use. Yeah, that always fascinated me when I was in school and hearing that people uh, with ADHD they were prescribed Adderall or something and they would take it and they would actually report sometimes feeling sleepy from it which is crazy because it's such a like strong uh, stimulant. Yeah. And I think there's a couple, a couple of elements to that, that come to mind um, for, for some people uh, that like having a stimulant um, to help them go to sleep, it, it sort of like calms their mind enough that, that they can finally relax. Um, and, um, and then another, and, but the other thing to kind of look out for is sometimes stimulants at too high of a dose can kind of make you feel like sleepy and dizzy and just kind of numb. Um, so I think, I think there's like, that could be a sign that it's a really great dose and a really great medication, or it could be a sign to um, see if maybe there's a, a dose that might work better and, and help them feel like calm and level and alert without being too sleepy or too wired. Mm. So in, uh, in current times, and especially, you know, in the past probably two decades or so, it's become a very common approach to give uh, these kinds of stimulants to people with ADHD as a way of treating their symptoms, even mm -hmm. from a pretty young age. Mm -hmm. when they're still in early school uh, mm -hmm. days. Do you think that that's effective? And um, what are some alternatives? I wanted to get into alternatives to that pathway because it seems a little bit intense to give amphetamine salts to kids, even if it is kind of effective, I would suppose there's a lot of side effects with it as well. Yeah, well, there's what, what I've seen in the research and what kind of the consensus is, is that there really isn't another medical intervention or medication intervention that's more effective than stimulants in terms of, um, you know, emotion regulation and focus and, um, I primarily treat adults, so I, I do have to give that that caveat in terms of you know those. I um, 
I don't have a lot of experience with, with working with small children with, with ADHD. Um, but the, you know, in the experience that I do have prescribing, finding there, there are a lot of different stimulants and a lot of different formulations of them. And when you find one that, um, that works well, like ideally you'll have one that has minimal to, to no side effects and will just achieve that, like feeling, feeling kind of like, oh, I can, I'm, I just feel calm and, and focused. And um, if, you know, if you're noticing too much appetite suppression or jitteriness or cardiovascular effects, then that is most likely not the right medication for that individual. Mm. Um, and, and there are also, um, you know, there's some non-stimulant medication options like, like Stratera and Wellbutrin that um, sort of increase some of that stimulation without, you know, being an, an amphetamine. Um, and there are um, uh, medications like, like guanfacine or clonidine that um, are really great for, like they're more calming and they can help with sleep and, um, and are really helpful for uh, rejection sensitive dysphoria too, which is um, a part of, of that emotional regulation piece um, mm. is a lot of people with ADHD have a tendency to uh, or experience rejection sensitive dysphoria, which is almost like can be a debilitating response, um, negative emotional response to, to any kind of perceived rejection. Um, and um, in terms of alternatives, there are, I, I think that really some of the, the best places to start are with lifestyle and, and creating structure around sleep, nutrition, and exercise. Um, and, and we can get into some of the, some of the other treatments like herbs and, and, um, and nutrients and things like that. But um, a, lot, a lot of people with ADHD have a hard time sleeping with, or getting to sleep or creating structure with sleep. And so sleep depri deprivation has a lot of the same symptoms of ADHD, mm. um, you know, with like difficulty focusing, difficulty with emotion regulation, um, just kind of not feeling good. So um, that's, that's a huge one that um, can make such a big impact. Um, and eating regularly throughout the day. A lot of times people will either forget to eat or eat inconsistently. Um, or if, if they have a little bit of appetite suppression or, or are hyper-focused um, with either due to medication or otherwise, then um, they might forget to eat throughout the day and then eat um, like binge at night and then have the sort of negative cycle with, with how they feel about food. Um, and, and then exercise is, is also increases um, dopamine and norepinephrine and serotonin and all of the things that ADHD brains tend to be a little bit lower in too. Hmm. Uh, yeah. As far as herbs, I've mm -hmm. heard that uh, there's some research about green tea being very effective for people, ADHD and caffeine in general by that same stimulant theory. Mm -hmm. Is there any herbs that you found uh, maybe uh, personally effective, effective for your patients, or just seen some research about that 
are good ones to start out with? Yeah, um, but some of the ones that I like to use are, um, I really like rhodiola, it's, mm-hmm. which is, you know, sort of a, a mildly stimulating adaptogen. Um, and I found, um, I found that I think I'm personally drawn to it because I find other stimulating adaptogens like eleuthero and, and ginseng to be a little too stimulating for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, another reason that I think adaptogens are great to have on board is because of that like constant extra effort that it can take to do kind of day-to-day tasks um, tend to be stressful. It takes, you know, takes a little extra energy. And so having, having adaptogens on board to help cope with that, are, I think are really, really useful. Um, another one that there's a study that I saw that compared saffron to uh, Ritalin and in terms of focus, and it was a, a, I think it was a small study with, with children, but in terms of focus, they saw no difference um, in, in those. So I've been, been starting to um, work that into my practice a little bit and, um, and see, see if that, that's helpful for, for adults. I've seen, um, I, I, found a, I found a supplement that has saffron, ginkgo, spearmint, and lemon balm, um, mm. and, and saw, saw some, some improvement with that with, mm. um, with a couple of patients. So I think the, um, I think they included the spearmint because it has rosmarinic acid, um, which is, which can be helpful for focus. Um, so yeah. And then also, uh, valerian drop dose valerian for sensory support. A lot of mm. people with ADHD have sensory sensitivity in some way, um, either easily distracted or irritated by sounds or bright lights or, um, or, you know, clothing that's uncomfortable, uh, and drop dose valerian tincture in like, you know, like five drops can actually be really helpful for, for sensory sensitivity. Mm. That's interesting that uh, saffron could be beneficial for ADHD because mm-hmm. I've seen some research of it being actually pretty effective for mild to moderate depression. Mm-hmm. The issue with saffron, though, that I uh, it's kind of unfortunate is that it's really expensive for the doses that you actually need for it to be effective, at least as far as the research goes into. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the um, if the nervine herb class is a, another good option, especially for people with hyper-stimulated type of ADHD where they're like restless, anxious, that kind of thing. Like you mentioned one of them, Valerian. Yeah. Um, have you seen any benefit or any research about things like uh, passion flower? I know one of the formulas had lemon balm in it, mm-hmm. um, lavender, things of uh, herbs like that, especially in the mint family that tend to be pretty sedating. Yeah, yeah, I use I use passion flower a lot. Um, I've I've given people skull cap and formulas, or um, the encapsulated lavender extract um, has been really helpful for um, for the uh, anxiety that often often shows up. Which which um, a lot of a lot of the patients that I see will will say like, oh, I'm I'm coming to you for ADHD and anxiety. And um, a lot of times the anxiety is secondary to 
like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, um, you know, make it through this, this conversation and, and focus on what the other person is saying. And um, so I, by, like, I, I am treating the anxiety. I usually, I usually try to uh, target, like, if, you know, if they are wanting stimulant medication, that can often reduce the anxiety a lot without even um, doing anything directly. Um, or, or I guess, yeah, not, not using like just nervines, but, um, but yes, I, I do, I do find that, that those herbs are, are really helpful. Um, however, if we treat the anxiety without treating the ADHD or, mm -hmm. or aren't, you know, adding additional supports for, um, for focus or in order to sort of externalize some of that executive dysfunction or executive uh, difficulties by like creating structure and, and mm -hmm. making sure that the other foundations are taken care of, um, then it doesn't quite address the, or it's, it's not an optimal treatment. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, from the traditional Western herbalist standpoint, I don't know if you're familiar with that kind of approach, but uh, a lot of times uh, you might not even treat the surface level organ system that's affected. So obviously the nervous system is what seems to be primarily affected by ADHD. But I wonder if uh, different uh, organ systems, especially when you think of them energetically, mm. are uh, out of balance. Like, for example, in Chinese medicine, the liver is and the gallbladder are kind of the seat of the willpower and mm -hmm. that uh, meaning in life and purpose. So maybe somebody with ADHD, that seems to be the fundamental imbalance that they just feel like they're wavering in their path because they haven't found that purpose. So I wonder if for those people treating their liver specifically, or maybe their ADHD comes from their, well, at least it gets exacerbated a lot by their diet and how they live. So obviously the liver detoxing that. So I like to think of things in that uh, fashion. I don't know how familiar you are with the traditional uh, Western herbalism system with uh, plant energetics and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would be interested to, to like see a little bit more about, about how that, that would work. So I've got, I have some, or how that would work. I have some passing, passing familiarity with some of the, the more um, energetic things. And, and sometimes, um, sometimes I will uh, talk to a patient who's like if they have they're particularly drawn to a certain herb or um, or have have more of an interest in that like um, finding something that that will match that that energetic uh, impulse rather than sort of going from like okay symptom and like what what will right you know, kind treating of kind of holistically yeah. as opposed to you know this herb is good for anxiety. So I'll give that one. It, mm -hmm. um, I think that's yeah. where, where the medicine really shines is when we, we look kind of for the deeper uh, causes of things. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something uh, interesting before that trauma has a big uh, influence on people with ADHD and may even be a causative factor. Why do you think that is? Why um, trauma specifically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think there are a lot of things that, you know, when someone has, um, has had a, a really traumatic event or, or, um, or time period in their life, it, um, it really dysregulates their nervous system. And in, in, this, in this way that, that it just 
your nervous system kind of gets stuck in 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 um, in either like hypervigilance or um, in, or downregulated or, or you know any any kind of um, variation of that and. So I, I think that it can be a contributor to, to symptoms of, of ADHD in the sense that um, if someone is already predisposed or already has ADHD and then experiences trauma or even the trauma of chronic rejection and shame from having ADHD and not having it be recognized, mm. um, then that exacerbates the dysregulation um, and um, contributes to contributes to the you know symptoms of of you know being overwhelmed by by um, emotion or um, or memories and and just having a hard time kind of staying present. Um, and I've I've seen a lot of um, a lot of people who've had trauma that like I I think that what we're working with is PTSD. And there's just so much of an overlap of of some of of some of the symptoms of like memory challenges, um, the the ability to regulate an emotion, the ability to remember like now versus not now, like when you're having having a flashback or a memory or or frustrated mm. by something in the moment, remembering that there are other times and that this will pass. Um, and that that kind of being overwhelmed by the present moment can happen with with both ADHD and PTSD. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about trauma is that it seems like these events happen and there's a kind of imprinting in a sense on the nervous system. And many of the symptoms that manifest are kind of the adaptations to that life at that period of time. But as life continues, they, they kind of get in the way. So something like ADHD, maybe early trauma leads to them just kind of being generally dissociated from what's going on and easily distractible because that was maybe a great way for them not to experience the pain of their situation is to be distracted or not pay attention to it directly. So it mm -hmm. becomes almost like a temperamental uh, trait. Yeah, I think I'm, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say that trauma causes ADHD. I think, I think there are times like where they're present, it's likely that ADHD was was there and like that is part of how the nervous system is wired and mm -hmm. then the with the additive effect of trauma or the unsupportive environment um the and not having you know ha already having challenges with with um coping and and planning and then having on top of that this um really traumatic influence um sort of just makes it harder to, to find that regulation or even know what, what that regulation feels like in, in oneself. Um, and, and with, you know, with complex trauma or, or, you know, challenging childhood um, environments there, we really need to have, like we learn everything by what, by example. And so if there's no one around who has a regulated nervous system um, and, we're already predisposed to having a dysregulated nervous system or a nervous system that's really hard to hard to regulate, then um, that can certainly have an additive effect. What are some things that people with ADHD can do to 
uh, in their lives to mitigate some of the symptoms, uh, specifically their level of attention, their ability to kind of follow through on tasks? What are some, some practices that could be done, let's say? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, I think having, having some, um, some self-compassion of, of like, you know, there are going to be some times that are, that are easier than others to, to focus and engage and having some flexibility um, with, with yourself as much as possible. Um, but also creating, I think one of the biggest things is creating structure. So um, having having the, the same time that you have meals every day or the same time that you go to sleep every day. Um, and, and also finding ways that, um, that you can make things um, urgent or interesting or challenging in some way. So one, one of the techniques that um, people use it, uh, like I think on the, on the, reddit or internet they were talking about like the pomodoro technique which is mm -hmm. basically like the you know setting yourself a timer and being like i'm just going to work on this for however long and then that's it and so sort of creating that that structure of something that's really circumscribed and like okay i've got to get as much as i can done here um and also going easy on yourself because people with adhd tend to really be over ambitious with like they'll make a to-do list that's like got like 50 things on it and then feel really bad when they only get two things done but in like in reality like it, it's not humanly possible to get that many things done in a day so kind of like celebrating what you do get done mm -hmm. um and i think the other the other thing that that comes to mind is uh if you know if there's someone that can be your your body double, so to speak. So if you have someone in your household um, that can just sit with you while you're working on something or work on something on their own, or if you don't have someone in your immediate household, um, you know, having having someone on Zoom or or like some kind of virtual just presence, you'll be like, okay, there's someone else here, and sometimes just having the presence of another person can really help mm. with with you know, getting through that feeling of stuckness and getting through that feeling of not being able to start. From some of the solutions you talked about, it it makes me think a lot of the system of energetics of Ayurveda and mm. the fact that there's kind of three constitutional types. So there's the Vata, Pitta, and Kapha. Kapha is kind of like the bigger set, slow, sluggish type. Vata is very nervous system active, very, you know, like mood shifting. And Pitta is more like ambitious, aggressive, that kind of personality type, just in their super basis. But mm -hmm. a lot of the things that seem to occur with ADHD, like lack of focus, irregular schedule, these kind of things are classic constitutional characteristic of the Vata type. Mm -hmm. um, and the actual treatments in Ayurveda for that type are regular meals, regular sleep, uh, things of that nature, things like uh, warming herbs, because mm -hmm. it tends to be a very cold type of constitution, things that calm down the nervous system. So a lot of the sedative herbs are used for it. So mm -hmm. I wonder if from in, the, in that system, they might even just call it like a very extreme uh, imbalance of a natural constitutional type where that person is just wired in a certain way. And when their environment, their lifestyle diet are out of whack, then it gets so exacerbated that it becomes kind of this disorder of ADHD. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
That's interesting. And, and I think um, that it's, it's kind of neat to hear kind of like the parallels of, of you know, how, how we think about it and, and, and structure and things to help support that. Um, and it kind of, you know, kind of reminds me of bringing it back to of to the the idea of like, um, you know, maybe it's not a disorder. It's just like the way that the world is organized is not particularly helpful for mm -hmm. um, for that type of nervous system. Um, right. And how did it survive for so long? Right. Through evolution. I mean, obviously, that type of person, if it is genetic at all that it was beneficial to be that type of person in certain societies and events mm -hmm. and whatever. Maybe they were really good at finding like things in the forest. Cause they were always like their attention was everywhere or something mm -hmm. like that. Or maybe they were really good at uh, becoming super specialists in a certain category. Cause at, you, as you were mentioning about people with ADHD, when they find something they're really interested in, they kind of seem to get like obsessed about it where mm -hmm. other people won't have that level of focus. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think there, you know, there are actually a lot of strengths to um, that even in, in present day society that is um, that are really helpful, like people with with ADHD tend to be really creative and, and be able to think out of outside of the box and are um, often artistically talented. And, and do you have, you know, the, as, as you're, uh, as you're saying, like with that, that hyper-focused superpower, um, when there's something that really hooks their interest, they can really just like, um, dive into it and, and make, you know, make projects or breakthroughs or, um, or just something that's really personally satisfying, uh, when, when they're able to sort of mm -hmm. harness that. I think that's an empowering viewpoint too, to not think of it as all bad, but as a just unique thing that needs, that has its goods and bads that uh, just needs to kind of be balanced and understood as not something being wrong with that person, but as just something that uh, is unique about them, that is a, could be a strength. Yeah. And, and I just want to add like most, a lot of the, the symptoms or, or things that people um, come in for treatment for are more related to where ADHD meets society and has a hard time meeting those demands and not due to the symptoms themselves. Mm. Like being able to, you know, if they have the flexibility to um, sort of like wander off and, and not do what they're supposed to be doing right at that moment, but wait until they have enough interest or urgency to do that, then it's not really a problem that they can't do it right then. But if they don't have that flexibility and they're overwhelmed or distracted because of the clock ticking or the fluorescent light buzzing, then that's when it becomes an, an issue. So it's, it's mm. really, um, a lot of it is, um, I think the, the environment and, and the lack of recognition and the, um, the way that people are, are shamed or taught like, oh, just try harder, you know, um, rather than finding a way to make the environment supportive for them. Mm. That's, a, that's a good point that you bring up that it's the symptoms in and of themselves are not necessarily so negatively experienced. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I bet to somebody with ADHD when they're trying to learn something boring and they just can't do it, they're like, well, it's just because it's boring. Why, why would I even <laughs> care about learning about this? And when they find something interesting, they're obsessed about it. And obviously that's like a very positive experience. But as you say, when they when it meets like relationships or jobs and work responsibilities, then it 
starts becoming like this conflict where they can't really adapt to the world that they live in. Yeah, or the world doesn't know how to adapt to them, and 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 uh, isn't there's there's just a kind of a lack of communication, a lack of mutual support in a lot of situations. What kind of career paths do you think would be good for people with ADHD? Um, I think there's probably that varies pretty widely, um, but you know, obviously something if there's something that that someone finds personally interesting, but also um, on like something like entrepreneurship could be um, since there's a lot of change and a lot of um, a lot of different things that that can be focused on um, that could be a good thing. Um, and yeah, there there are depending on kind of your personality and and interests, you know, going doing something in the creative field, whether it be like art or or um, some kind of design. Um, sometimes people with ADHD do really well with deadlines. Um, so like, you know, something where that, that's like project based. Um, on the other hand, I like for me, part of the reason why I'm, I created, started my own practice is because I really need flexibility and um, being able to, you know, have, have flexibility in my schedule and being able to rest when I'm feeling overwhelmed or exhausted and then, but still having the structure of, um, of the, the business and being able to interact with people and sort of like have that balance. So um, yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of successful people who are, who are like CEOs and doctors and artists, and it's really, really across the spectrum. Mm. So it's kind of hard. I feel like, I feel like a, it's kind of a hard question to answer, mm-hmm. um, but I guess those, those are a couple of the elements that come to yeah. mind. I would, I would think there's like a answer for things that they shouldn't do. Like a nine to five job that they hate is probably going to be much harder <laughs> for them than it is for another person to kind of mm-hmm. just grind through it. So yeah. at, at least that as far as, uh, so with a lot of these psychological, um, uh, conditions, there's questionnaires that, you know, you answer questions and it tells you what's your likelihood and severity. Is there one for ADHD, like some questionnaire that, you can like look up like to score how bad your symptoms are or if you know you're just having that's just your experience but you don't actually have ADHD in any real form mm-hmm. I think that um so one of the more common like kind of primary care screeners is the ASRS mm-hmm. um and that's just kind of a a, a short one page screener um I also have um there are a lot of articles on the internet that like I have no affiliation with the attitude uh, magazine but um, attitude.org has some some mm-hmm. good ones and like they've got some articles like what does ADHD look like in women and like adult ADHD versus like the diag- you know criteria for children and um, so I think you know resources like that are are great to look look into um, there's also the in terms of, of diagnosis from a clinical standpoint, um, the DIVA, what is it? DIVA 2.0 uh, questionnaire is a, um, is a sort of a structured clinical interview mm-hmm. that if you suspect one of your patients has ADHD and you, you, know, you feel comfortable evaluating them, um, that, that's a, a good standardized um, questionnaire that, that you can use as a guideline. 
Yeah, I, I'm uh, asking you because I actually want to look into it and see <laughs> see how I score on these tests. Because based on everything you said, I'm pretty sure I have ADHD and have my whole life, but I just never I just never really went to get it diagnosed. So that's mm-hmm. that's good to know. Um, yeah. So I have, so let's, I wanted to zoom out a little bit. Um, we've been talking a lot about ADHD, which is, which is awesome. Um, what do you think is the role of a naturopathic doctor or physician in mental health? So being that we're both naturopathic doctors that focus on mental health, uh, we're obviously different in some way than other naturopathic doctors because we have that kind of specialty and also different than the conventional model and psychologists and that kind of thing. What's our role in the healthcare system for mental health? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, since, you know, since we have training in, in, or the holistic approach is really focused on mind-body medicine, uh, I think we have a really unique opportunity to, to bring that to patients. And, um, you know, in thinking about, you know, exploring like, oh, how do I fit into the sort of like medical landscape I, I do feel like we're sort of a, a blend of, um, you know, being able to do some counseling and being able to do prescribing and being able to do the foundational work of uh, mind, you know, mind body, mind body medicine and um, looking at ways you can support the whole system. Um, I think that that's really a strength. Um, mm. And that being said, I also have some reservations about, I do think that additional study and additional um, education in mental health is really important for naturopathic doctors um, due to like some of the, some of the, like we don't have a lot of really good training, at least when I was in, in school. Um, I feel like the training that I received from the naturopathic side was, was great for kind of like just, sort of basic getting, getting, making sure, you know, doing no harm and, and things like that. Um, but I feel like more in-depth mental health training, like in the integrated mental health program or through residency or clinical rotations were um, really vital for me for rounding out, um, my skills in mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think, uh, naturopaths have a we're unique because we can do kind of so many things. We're in a sense, a jack of all trades. And I, I guess the difficulty with that is really being good, like a master at a, a few of the things. But mm-hmm. in terms of mental health, I think we're really well suited, especially as you mentioned, if we get additional training, uh, you know, through apprenticeship, uh, self-study, wh- whatever, uh, learning, you know, more about the mental health sphere. And there's you know, there's plenty to learn about psychology. You can learn, you know, I'm particularly fond of uh, Carl Jung's uh, methods, psychotherapy methods and uh, dream interpretation. And that's kind of like the tradition that I went to, but there's a lot of information out there. And this day and age, I don't even think you like, you can learn so much on your own from like the internet uh, research, from reading books and studying them that, you know, you can really do that. But going back to the original point, uh, as naturopaths, we can deal with all the aspects of somebody's life and obviously all the aspects affect mental health. So dealing with somebody's diet, which has a big influence, dealing with their lifestyle, their exercise has a big influence, dealing with, mm-hmm. you know, just basic issues that they have in their life, the counseling aspect, uh, dealing with maybe the case is so um, 
intense or it's so debilitating that you kind of need a temporary pharmaceutical to kind of level out so that you could do more work and then doing the kind of holistic approach of herbs and supplements and all that kind of thing. And we can kind of do all that stuff. So Mm -hmm. that's really, really kind of beneficial because if you go to a psychiatrist, you might get, you know, psychotherapy and a pharmaceutical. If you go to an MD, you're probably just going to get a pharmaceutical and, and not much else. If you go to a psychologist, you're just going to get counseling. So, mm-hmm. so we can kind of do a lot of the things depending on our uh, specialty. So I think that we're very uniquely suited to it. And I also find that a lot of the people that come to naturopaths are wanting that kind of service because in the conventional system, it is so disregarded. Like mm-hmm. in a lot of the conventional medical system, if you tell your doc that you are feeling anxious, they'll give you a questionnaire and they'll prescribe something for you. And it won't, they just don't have enough time to ask you, you know, like what happened when you were three years old? Mm-hmm. That's all. That's like a whole visit in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even, you know, even when you do have that, um, you know, that insight and that training and ability that's, that's still a lot for, for one person to do. And, um, you know, I'm finding that a lot of times if I have, have patients who, um, especially if it's a complex case, I really do enjoy working in a team and being able to, you know, maybe do some, some counseling and some, um, some prescribing and naturopathic medicine, and then have them also have a therapist that they're seeing that I can kind of like you know, stay on the same page with and kind of reinforce what, what they're working on with their therapist, if that comes up. Um, Cause it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's a, we're very complex beings and, and it takes a long time for, especially with like counseling work and deep work. Uh, it takes a really long time to sort of have that heal and have that start to shift. And, mm-hmm. um, and if there's, especially like now with, with all that's going on in the world, um, if someone comes in every week and, and you're just putting out a fire every week because every, you know, it feel everything is just constantly feeling like too much being able to work in an, in a team or, or someone that, that can sort of give them the types of support that gives you enough space to really work mm-hmm. on, on things in, in the visit. Great point. Yeah. I, I highly agree. Uh, naturopaths are particularly well suited to be part of a, integrative team just mm-hmm. because we we do have so much exposure of the other fields which i think is important to understand like what the people you're working with strengths and weaknesses are and what they can and can't do mm-hmm. so that you can kind of be like you know the in a team you could be the person who kind of figures out like where to allot everyone like do they go to this counselor do they go to this massage therapist mm-hmm. so i think that that puts us in a really good role just with our overview of yeah. uh, the fields. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good time. I know the, uh, the association for uh, naturopathic psychiatrists is making a lot of big movements these days, trying to get board examination for psychiatry slash psychology for naturopaths. So I'm looking forward to that and mm-hmm. all the people who want to focus in mental health. Cause that's been kind of my passion since I, I don't know, since I was pretty, since I was still in like college. Mm-hmm. So, and I kind of just found this, this was the route that I took to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I, it's interesting how the, that path to what, what you want to do a lot of times ends up being very meandering. And I feel like that yeah. happens with, with naturopaths a lot. <laughs> it, it might be ADHD too. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but um but yeah like I, I honestly don't regret it because i think like if i had gone so I, earlier in my life so i studied philosophy when i was in school mm-hmm. i was considering kind of just going straight into psychology but like after i've had the overview and all the medical education and then all the self self-study i actually in some ways i feel like i w- I wouldn't have known like the impact of just the biological and physiological aspects of mental health, which I think are super important to appreciate along with the psychological. So I, mm-hmm. I think that it's really good to understand both because sometimes it's, you know, it's just because they eat McDonald's three times a day. I mean, like how, how happy can you be if you eat junk food all day long? Like your body is just under so much stress from that, that it's like, it's hard to be in a positive mood. So there's obviously physiological factors that impact mental health. So I think that they're super important to, to count in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it's a, it's a, an interesting thing that you bring up with like with fast food and diet. And, and that's, you know, that's certainly something um, that I, I've had quite a journey with both personally and um, in, in terms of just my overall clinical journey with, um, with disordered eating and, and mental health. And, um, I, you know, I kind of started out with very, you know, often recommending, like feeling like there was a perfect diet and, and recommending like, Oh, this is how you eat a whole foods diet. And and I certainly think that whole foods are important. Um, but there's so much, um, so much in with like diet culture and um, and extremes like you know with a lot of times I, I, people will go to to a doctor or a medical practitioner and say like oh what should I eat um, and they say eat more vegetables and and then the person like goes into full blown keto or like full blown you know some really restrictive diet um, that ends up being harmful in some ways or or they end up skipping meals and um i've actually seen with in in my approach i've started just saying like let's just start with getting you eating throughout the day like just like let's create a schedule where you can have like three meals a day um and and not be skipping meals and um find that just with that people um feel so much more regulated mood wise they have much lower anxiety, they can concentrate better, um, they aren't having cravings for, um, for like eating, you know, massive amounts of, of sugar at the end of the day, because their bodies are telling them that they're starving, and they need to do something about it. Um, and, and from there, it's, it's sort of, you know, just encouraging, okay, like eat what you want, and incorporate some variety, like incorporate a vegetable every now and then. And, um, sort of with taking that intuitive eating approach and like really telling people that it's okay to eat. Like so many people feel like they can't eat, like they have to starve themselves all day. Um, it, then yeah, getting in touch with, with that, that intuitive eating and what your body signals are already telling you, um, I think is, is, uh, a, a really, a really healthy way to, to come mm-hmm. back to, mm-hmm. um, yeah, come back to your relationship with food. Yeah. And I've, I've noticed a lot in patients that uh, 
the stringency of diets has a lot of negative psychological effects. Mm-hmm. Like they'll, you know, eat something that they're not supposed to eat because, you know, whoever told them that, you know, God forbid you eat a tomato and they'll mm-hmm. feel really, really bad about themselves. Yeah. And I, I'm almost like a hundred percent sure that just the feeling of really bad and stress is worse than like the donut that they ate. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the fact that they, I agree. They like just canceled all their plans that day because they ate a donut and felt so bad about themselves is probably yeah. way more harmful. Like, so I think that a conversation around um, not like eating unhealthily in a mm-hmm. sense, but in being aware that you're going to slip and it's okay. And it's part of the process. No big deal. Like it's what you eat regularly that matters, not what you eat one day, not what you eat two days. It's your general diet that has the most effect, not, you know, the off slice of cake that you eat and you don't have to beat yourself up over it. I think that's a really important point too, as you were kind of talking about. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's about like getting, eating some vegetables and, and like some, some form of balance and do what you can. Yeah. And if, you know, if you're, feeling like you can't have, um, you know, can't have a dessert with your, you know, in a social setting, then like that, that social connection is just as important as, as nutrients, like, and, and nourishment. And it's a form of nourishment in itself. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a, it's really, really helpful to have a, a moderate, stance in that and and of course I'm, I'm not talking about like people with celiac disease who will like you know get very sick if they eat I'm not saying like oh if you have celiac disease it's okay to yeah like de- definitely not but but in terms of like general dietary recommendations for for people who don't have um serious medical conditions mm-hmm. that um preclude certain foods yeah and the uh I like the point you bring up about their there isn't like any one ideal diet that fits everybody and kind of going back to the uh, Ayurveda way of looking at diet uh, like the types that typically would have mental types of issues like anxiety, especially ADHD, the, the Vata type I was talking about, which is that kind of thin, like nervous systems, very overactive type of person. Mm -hmm. uh, They actually, they're actually uh, not recommended to eat raw vegetables at all they're supposed Mm -hmm. to only eat like cooked vegetables and things Mm -hmm. that are really like warm and they're not really supposed to do like intermittent fasting or long-term fasting because that increases that vata energy so Mm -hmm. like those general like health advice like there's so much research about intermittent fasting being great fasting being great about raw food diets being great but they don't necessarily apply to everyone at all times so i think that Mm -hmm. that's important to view the person holistically um, and not just think that because the research says that intermittent fasting is great, that everyone should always do it. Uh, I think yeah. it has to be in place. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the principles of naturopathic medicine is that like the, the healing power of nature and, and that, that your the organism will naturally tend towards health given the right um, resources and, mm-hmm. and removal of obstacles. And, I really believe that extends to nutrition. And, you know, if you can help someone connect with their internal cues for, for eating and food and, um, and what kinds of things they're craving and also addressing, you know, any emotional story that, cause we all have an emotional story with about food too. 
um, and really increasing the availability of variety as much as possible. Like if, you know, if there isn't, um, if you don't have foods rich in certain nutrients, then you're probably not, it's not going to occur to you to eat them. But, um, but yeah, I think that it's our responsibility to help people connect with their own internal healing wisdom um, mm -hmm. in terms of nutrition. Mm -hmm. and, and it can be a long and challenging journey. Like a lot of, a lot of people have had such a challenging relationship with food that they really have no idea where to start. And, and they do need that support of like, okay, this is what it feels like, or that this is hunger. You, you actually, it's not, you know, there are hunger cues before the point where you feel like you're about to pass out and your stomach is audibly growling. Like there, there are points before that, that let's figure yeah. out how to listen to those and, <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. I think that's super important with all the just general ideas about diet, especially even within the natural health type of spheres where mm -hmm. there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of extremism actually, I would say, mm -hmm. you know, like intense juice fasts and, um, those kind of things like very long-term fast, which I think could be amazing for certain things, but aren't like a one size fits all. And I think even the aspect you brought up of, you know, the person's diet, how it relates to their social and family and friend life. Like if they're just not going out for pizza and they don't have celiacs because they're afraid of eating pizza. Whereas mm -hmm. like overall, maybe the health benefit of just being with their close friends would have been better or maybe they feel weird because they eat different stuff than people around them and people kind of look at them so mm -hmm. there's there's so much to it and i think that's why you should go see a naturopathic doctor because we deal with all those <laughs> things at the same time shameless mm -hmm. self-plug um so i want to i want to finish off with a, a question mm -hmm. are you familiar with measure 109 um is can you remind me what it is I think yeah I know what so about. measure 109 just passed uh, a few days ago, and it allows mm -hmm. psilocybin to be used uh, mm -hmm. as a, a medical therapy by mm -hmm. certain trained licensed facilitators. They're still working at specific details of what that means. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you what you thought about that, uh, considering that it is such a really a, a mental health therapy is what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is, um, is really interesting. And, and I think that I think it has the potential of being really helpful for a lot of people. Um, I'm curious about what kinds of structure and certification that, mm -hmm. that they're, they're going to be implementing. Um, the, um, the effects of psilocybin have, you know, a lot of um, potential for helping people feel a sense of connection and like ease with, with, um, and a sense of oneness. Uh, and so I think that could be really helpful for a lot of mental health, um, conditions. And, and there's also, you know, as with any psychedelic, um, it's not something that I would recommend for someone who's had psychosis, for example, um, cause they're, or, or, um, you know, someone who is in acute crisis, like a, a lot of times those that that can be potentially triggering for for folks. And so, um, yeah, as as with any medicine, especially with powerful medicines, I think that um, done done well and conscientiously with um, with trained 
trained uh, people who are trained in it um there's a lot of a lot of potential mm -hmm. for for healing there mm -hmm. and i'm interested too to see how they work out the specifics here in oregon mm -hmm. um because as you said it could have great benefit for especially kind of the typical malaise of civilization the kind of anxiety and depression that most people feel more mm -hmm. or less most of the time i think that like it's it's particularly great for that because it uh as you were mentioning that feeling of oneness it also gives a sense of deeper meanings in life which is usually mm -hmm. what people who uh who are you know suffering from a lack of meaning in their life need obviously meaning mm -hmm. a sense that there's something greater than them uh you know new ideas for how to approach their life so i think it's a great benefit, but then also of great danger if used kind of very wild, wild west style, especially with mm -hmm. people with uh, maybe family histories of schizophrenia or past psychosis, as you mentioned, because mm -hmm. it is really strong and it it is a strong stressor on the mind, the psyche and the nervous system. So certain people might be worse off because of it than others. I, mm -hmm. I still think that's probably going to be more rare than like just generally okay effects from it or mm -hmm. very positive effects from it. But I worry about if they, depending on how they actually go about enacting the use of this and what they call uh, like a practitioner, or what the kind of training they have to go to, because, uh, you know, if there are severe bad events with just one person or two people that the whole show might close and that would be very, very upsetting uh, because this is such a kind of big move forward, I think, for uh, mental health therapies, because in, in my personal opinion and experience, those therapies used properly with the proper setting, uh, proper dosage, proper screening can they can be, you know, some of the most pivotal kinds of treatments that you can do for, for mental health or really more for spiritual health too. just mm -hmm. something even beyond just mental health. So I hope that all works out. I'm definitely planning on doing it if I possibly can. So we'll see mm -hmm. what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my hope would be that they would have, and I'm sure they'll come up with like some, some kind of screening criteria to sort of look out for, for some of those things, things that we were talking about that could potentially go awry right so, yeah. right and i think it's important to always keep in mind that people have been using it before it was legalized medically so mm -hmm. hopefully yeah. that this just leads to more safety if anything i can't yeah. see it leading to more harm mm -hmm. uh if anything it should be more safe now but well i guess we'll see as with all yeah. things <laughs> this is very experimental i think mm -hmm. uh i guess is it is it i think colorado has it decriminalized but I don't, I think Oregon, Oregon's the first state that has it uh, legalized for actual uh, medical usage in, mm -hmm. in a sense, uh, maybe yeah. even in the whole world. I'm not sure about that. I know other yeah. countries have recreational, but I don't know if they have like medicinal usage of it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's going to be another couple of years before we actually see, see it implemented and how the programs are going to unfold. Um, but, but it's a, an exciting first step. I'm very curious to see how this, how it, um, comes about. Me too. Yeah. And the, uh, in the law, they basically said that, uh, it will be implemented over the next two years. So mm -hmm. it's sooner rather than later, hopefully. Yeah. Well, Dr. Derrickson, uh, Derrickson, thank you for being on the show. This is the Herbal Hour podcast. Uh, where can people find your clinic, your work, what you're up um, to? Yeah, you can find me at my um, clinic website is shelteringoakclinic.com. 
Um, and I'm also on Instagram and Facebook at, um, at Dr. Derrickson, um, doctor is spelled out. And I'm currently accepting new patients uh, virtually. So you can just contact me through, through one of those spots if you're interested in finding out how to make an appointment. Awesome. Sounds good. And if you guys are watching this on YouTube, subscribe. And also, if you want to visit the website directly, it's herbalhourpodcast.com. We're on iTunes, Spotify, all the places. So be sure to subscribe to us if you love learning about natural health. And, um, and that's all. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you so much.